0: My takeaway from doing this book was the U.S. remains the world's most advanced offensive cyber power, but our advantage is slipping. It is the last week of February and welcome to episode 68 of
1: Faultline, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues of national security and foreign policy. Today, Lester Munson, NSI senior fellow, will be doing a deep dive with Nicole Perlroth, cybersecurity and espionage reporter for the New York Times and recent author of This Is How They Tell Me the World Ends, The Cyber Weapons Arms Race. Nicole has been working this beat for almost a decade and has covered Russian hacks of nuclear power plants, airports, and elections, North Korea's cyber attacks against movie studios, banks, and hospitals, Iran's attacks on oil companies, banks, and the Trump campaign, and hundreds of Chinese cyber attacks, including a months-long hack of the New York Times. Nicole, thanks for being on the podcast.
0: Thanks so much for having me.
1: So before we get into the subject matter of the book, which is fascinating, I want to ask you about how you wrote this book, like literally from day to day. How did you divide up your time from your obligations at home, your obligations with your day job? How did you physically sit down and write this book? I'm fascinated.
0: Okay. Thank you so much for asking this question. Nobody has asked me this yet. And it was probably one of the most fascinating, difficult parts of writing the book was just how to do it when you cover nonstop cyber threats at the New York Times and you have a baby and a two-year-old and um, don't want a divorce. So I have a supportive husband who would let me duck out for maybe three days at a time to a cabin my family has always had in the Sierras. And I would come up here and I I think I ate canned tuna and maybe <laughs> you know coffee and canned tuna and maybe a banana every now and then and I would just write nonstop and I'm such a night person that I often wouldn't start until maybe 3 p.m. in the afternoon and not stop until 4 a.m. and then I would you know sleep in the morning, wake up, um, check my New York Times email, write a story if I had to, and then around 3:30 you know try and get my thoughts in order to to start writing and then when i couldn't do that you know when my my husband would not let me do that it was basically me working uh at home during the day and then pulling these all nighters where i think i was just losing my mind and thinking that the birds and owls outside were my friends <laughs> just totally losing it but also i found that the I could really get in the flow of writing was in that really quiet nighttime space in this little shed we have in our backyard that became my writing studio. And I will never do this this way again, you know. Hopefully, by the time, or if I ever, I should say, write another book, um, I will do it much in a much more structured, strategic way. But it was also kind of beautiful to just be out there in the middle of the night, thinking through these issues without your phone buzzing or someone you know telling you that something crazy happened on deadline and they need some copy from you in thirty minutes. And it was just the only time I could really get away. So that's that's part of it. And the other thing is I. So, this is such intimidating subject matter. You know, it's highly technical. I was writing about a market that no one in government wanted to talk about, that no one in this particular slice of the industry wanted to talk about, um, that it created a lot of writer's block. So, it took me seven years, and there were periods there where maybe for six months I didn't even open the Word document. It was just too scary. Um, and then I would open it up, see that what I had written before wasn't that bad and then spend you know three months hunkering down doing what I just described uh, and then get exhausted or scared or another case of writer's block and not touch the thing again for several months and then come back to it. But it was not a clean process. At one point, actually, the original publisher for the book was Penguin Random House, and they canceled on me, um, which I don't think anyone knows. And it's because they expected me to write this in nine months. And oh, I wow. was such an idiot um, when I signed on to, to the deal that I thought, oh, sure, I can do this in nine months you know what do they say you know if you need something done give it to the busiest person and those days were busy and you know five years later they canceled on me um, they were sick of waiting and I ended up finding a new publisher in Bloomsbury who loved the project loved what I had written and had really great sort of architectural feedback about how to restructure it so that's the that's the messy story behind writing this book that's a fantastic story thank you uh, uh...
1: I assume one of the things you were wrestling with during during this amazing process was how to balance between an audience of technologists and then a, a more general audience who doesn't have the, you know, the coding experience or the hacking experience. Mm-hmm. Or anything like that. How did you how did you find the right zone to be in for those two audiences?
0: It was the hardest part of the book. It gives me heartburn even to this day uh, to think about. The difficulties of writing for these multiple audiences—it's something I deal with every day at the New York Times. You know, I—I I tell the story in the book about the fact that when they first called me for this job, I had been writing about venture capital and startups at Forbes Magazine, and I had had some high-profile cover stories about people like Peter Thiel and Jim Breyer who'd invested early in Facebook, and so. The New York Times um, tech editor, Damon Darlin, gave me a call and he said, you know, someone threw your name in the hat and we're looking at you for this job, but I'm not sure you're going to want it. And I said, well, you're the New York Times. I'll probably take whatever it is and make it happen. And then I found out it was cybersecurity. And I just thought, oh my God, you know, I, not only do I not know anything about cybersecurity, I've actively gone out of my way to not know anything about cybersecurity. It just felt so intimidating. and..." I like to remember that feeling because I think that's how a lot of my readers in the New York Times feel about this topic and so it was a good gut check sometimes but then I got I I just I decided to go through with the interview process and I went to the New York Times building and it was 13 interviews I think over the course of 2 days in these half hour increments. And I just sort of gave myself this pep talk, like one day I'll be able to tell my grandchildren that the New York Times invited me into the building, but there's no way they're going to hire me to cover cybersecurity. And I actually went out of my way in those interviews to say, you know, I know some great cybersecurity reporters. I've worked with some of them. You should hire them. And their response was, we've interviewed a lot of the people you just named, and we had no idea what they were talking about. (laughs) <laughs> so, you're hired. And that really gets to the problem of writing about cybersecurity for the New York Times, where a lot of our readers, um, you know, the sad fact remains, most of our old print subscribers live on the Upper West Side and have never done anything with cybersecurity. And so all this to say that it's, it's the biggest challenge I face in my day job, but it was an even bigger challenge to write a book about the cyber arms industry, which is really just code, um, to write about it in a way that was accessible, that created a page turning narrative, that was about my own learning journey, and hopefully, you know, readers learning journey. And to do it in a way that the InfoSec community, that's the information security community, wouldn't just brutalize me. But I also knew it was inevitable that the information security community wouldn't like this book in a lot of ways. I've been surprised that a lot of people have come out and said that they loved it, but there have been their fair share of critics. And a lot of the critiques are, you know, technically, this is inaccurate, it should have been reworded this way. And then when you read the explanation for their suggestion, you just have no idea what they're talking about. But still, I think sometimes they make some some fair critiques. And, you know, I'll, I tweak the wording a little bit, maybe in the next run to sort of satisfy Um Their demands. But, you know, at at the end of the day, this was really written for my mom and maybe for kids and, you know, high school students or anyone. I just wanted people to understand that there was a market for our vulnerability, that the incentives, both for individuals, and businesses and government even really lead us down a path of further vulnerability and not security. And for too long, we've sort of left these conversations to government officials, to the information security community, to sort of these classified government corridors. And I really wanted people, everyday people to understand the threat landscape and the stakes and and hopefully so we can have some more accessible conversations about these topics.
1: Let's talk about the title of the book, which I think is fantastic. This is how they Tell me the World Ends. Is that related to what you were just discussing?:
0: Yes, it just came to me in the shower one day, like all good ideas do. and <laughs> I just wanted to keep it. you know, it came into me in the shower maybe ten years ago, and I just really wanted to make it work because when I started out covering cybersecurity at The New York Times, government officials were constantly warning me about a cyber Pearl Harbor, cyber 9-11, the sort of cyber induced kinetic boom moment that would shake us of our complacency. And I was so skeptical in those early days. And for good reason, you know, there were a lot of cybersecurity firms pitching me every day by the thousand in my inbox, warning of these dire scenarios to sell security software that clearly wasn't improving the situation for the most part. So I saw it as marketing on the one hand. I also just was uncomfortable with the analogies. I just felt like you don't want to scare people too much to the point where they think things are hopeless. And so that's sort of where the title comes from. But like I said, the book is hopefully a learning journey for readers. And I really wanted to take them by the hand and walk them through my own journey. My own journey was as a journalist being very skeptical of these claims 10 years ago, eight years ago. But as I've gotten to the place we are now, I still don't like the analogy of a cyber Pearl Harbor because I think we didn't see those planes coming, whereas we've seen the cyber equivalent coming for a long time. Um, So I think it's it's a little bit problematic, but for a very different reason than I just described. I also think it's just a distraction. The booms are a distraction from where we already are, which is um, that everything worth intercepting here has already been intercepted, you know, our cyber weapons, um, probably most notably, but also our personal data, our intellectual property, our power plants, our nuclear plants, our hospitals are getting ransomware. And it seems like actually what we're seeing isn't, a boom, but more like the pandemic, like this invisible threat that you don't care about it so much or you're scared of it. And then it hits you in a very visceral way, but you can't see it until it actually touches you. And I think that is actually where we are, that we need like a cyber COVID, which might be more of a a better analogy, although I I don't know if I love that one either.
1: So a big part of the book is how the US government dealt with this zero days issue. Zero days is when there's a a flaw in an existing operating system that can be exploited by anyone who knows how to do it. The US government decided to go out and hire hackers kind of creating a market for a certain kind of activity. Can you, can you talk about that phenomenon and and the moral hazard that it created?
0: Yes. Yeah, so the reason I wrote this book is because of the moral hazard it created. And the moral hazard is this: when the US government finds a vulnerability in a widely used piece of software or buys that uh, flaw in that software from hackers, which it has been doing largely through defense contractors, but also brokers that trade in these flaws in the code to exploit them. I was fascinated by this moral hazard that three decades ago, if we found a flaw in Huawei software, right used Chinese software used by North Korea. And other countries that don't like using uh, American technology, like Syria, Sudan, Iran. You know, if we found a flaw in Huawei's software and we exploited it to spy on our adversaries, that there would be no harm, no foul to Americans, because for the most part, Americans still were not using Huawei software today. Because of globalization, we're all using the same software for the most part. We're all using iPhones and Android phones and Microsoft Windows, whether you know it or not. So I was fascinated by this decision that U.S. government entities have to make if they find or buy a flaw in the software. Because to use that flaw for espionage, let's say, it means that you can't tell Microsoft or Apple or Google that there is a big flaw in their code that could be exploited to access communications. And so in what cases does the U.S. government decide to keep that and then necessarily keep Americans vulnerable too? And in what cases does it decide, you know what, this is going to create too much risk and too much blowback and perhaps damage to Americans and American businesses if an adversary or cyber criminals found this. But over the last 10 years, the stakes for these decisions have only gotten higher because we aren't just using software for our everyday communications. Um, and personal data we're, we're rolling it into power plants and nuclear plants and water treatment facilities and critical infrastructure and if we leave a flaw in that software in and- that infrastructure, that could be used for the kind of cyber 9-11, cyber Pearl Harbor we were talking about earlier. You know, Russia could use those vulnerabilities to break into a power plant and turn off the lights as they've done in Ukraine with one of these flaws. So you know, the stakes were only getting higher, but this was also a market that nobody wanted to talk to or talk about because of this moral hazard. No one wanted to admit that in the interest of national security, we were leaving Americans in many cases less secure. And then the other development that was happening was. 12 years ago, the biggest threats we faced online were China stealing our intellectual property, Anonymous, this sort of loose hacking collective, was trying to take websites offline, cyber criminals were committing fraud. But these days, we have more adversaries lined up at our gates than probably any other country in the world. Iran has emerged from the sort of digital backwater into one of the most prolific cyber adversaries we face. China has only gotten more sophisticated. Russia has gotten into our grid. They've broken into our nuclear plants, and now they're in our federal IT networks. And cyber criminals are holding our hospitals ransomware every day. So, this sort of theoretical threat that was lingering over us as American officials were making these decisions about whether to keep or turn over a zero day flaw um, are no longer theoreticals. You know, we have so many adversaries trying to get into our systems that really, when they make the calculus to hold on to, say, a flaw in Microsoft Windows software, the chances that someone uh, would find and use that against us eventually are very high.
1: And what's, what's the role that Stuxnet, the Stuxnet program, which the U.S., evidently the U.S. used uh, to attack Iranian centrifuges that they were using in their nuclear weapons program over a decade ago. How did, how did Stux, the Stuxnet incident impact all this? It seemed like a great idea at the time. We pushed the Iranian uh, nuclear program back probably by several years. But mm-hmm. how, does, how does it look now?
0: Well, in my opinion, that was brilliant, you know, and it was really fascinating to go back to that period in history, which you know feel strange even calling it history because it wasn't that long ago. They rolled out that computer worm that we call Stuxnet, but I think internally they called it Olympic Games in, in 2007. And so much has happened since then. But it was interesting to go back to that year because George W. administration, you know, second term, Iraqi soldier death counts were reaching an all-time high. We were already overstretched uh, between the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq And Israel was pressuring us to hand over our bunker buster bombs. And every simulation that the Pentagon ran on what would happen if Israel bombed Iran's nuclear facility, the Natan's nuclear facility, showed that we would be dragged into World War III. And not only that, but we might not win it because we were so overstretched in the Middle East. So W had very little appetite for getting into a third war. And uh, so he said, get me a third option. And that third option became the Stuxnet worm, which took out the centrifuges, at apnotons, and was really brilliant, not just in what it did, uh, but also in the fact that it was engineered clearly with some lawyers sitting around. It was really designed just to get into that specific configuration of, of centrifuges, apnotons, and not do destruction if it got into any other system. The problem is and this has happened with almost every cyber attack I can think of that I've covered, even the most targeted ones, is it got out. And when it got out, it zoomed all over the world. It got into Chevron's network in the U.S. It got into countries all over India and Asia, and it allowed security researchers all over the world, including in Iran, to dissect the code and ultimately tie this back to a joint operation by the U.S. and Israel on Iran's nuclear centrifuges. Now, we all admired the mastery involved and sort of the careful mechanisms built into the code, but that's not what our Adversaries were admiring. What they were admiring was the fact that code could be used for such a destructive purpose and that the US had just gotten away with it and Israel. You know, that suddenly we made it okay for a foreign nation to leap into your critical infrastructure, your power plant, your nuclear plant, and do actual destruction, you know, whether that's take out the centrifuges or turn off the lights. Um, So at that time, when I went back and looked at where Iran was in terms of its cyber capabilities in 2007, or even in 2010, when the worm was finally discovered, they didn't have very much. They were just spending most of their energies spying on their own people with really low level basic capabilities. But two years after Stuxnet was discovered, there was this attack by Iran on Saudi Aramco, that wiped out all the data on Saudi Aramco's business network and replaced it with an image of a burning American flag. And what that showed us was, oh, S-H-I-T, Iran has caught up in a way we didn't expect them to, much quicker than we expected them to. And that attack did not need the sophistication of Stuxnet. It just used very rudimentary wiping code that could just decimate the data and in some ways do as much harm to a system like Saudi Aramco's as the most sophisticated code did. And there were no careful components built into that code. And we've seen that play out over and over and over again since Duxnet was discovered. We saw Russia detonate an attack on Ukraine, the NotPetya attack in 2017, that was aimed at Ukraine, but it didn't have any careful um, mechanisms built in. And it boomeranged around the world and it hit companies here like FedEx and Pfizer and Merck. It destroyed their vaccine production that year. Merck actually had to tap into the CDC's emergency stockpiles Gardasil vaccine that year. So it did real harm and it didn't have any of these you know, carefully concocted NSA uh, mechanisms built in. And Stuxnet you know, basically opened the world's eyes to what was possible with code. And where you see that really play out is in the market for zero days and zero day exploits, these flaws in code. And we've seen countries start buying their way into this market and these capabilities we now see the countries that offer top price for an iPhone iOS zero-day exploit capability is not the United States or US brokers. It's a broker in the Middle East called CrowdFence that works exclusively for the UAE and Saudi Arabia. And, you know, if you were following along with the Jamal Khashoggi case um, or some of the surveillance episodes to come out of the UAE, you know that those countries are. Are not using those capabilities necessarily to just spy on terrorists. They're using them to spy on and torture their own people and dissidents. So the market has really drifted from one that was, you know, in some ways US controlled or at least spawned or catalyzed to one where these other countries all over the world see the power of a zero day, not just for espionage but for destruction and and are all stockpiling them for a rainy day.
1: So there's a lot of talk in the uh, national security community about how the U.S. government should behave in, in the cybersecurity realm, whether we should consider more offensive operations. In other words, just playing defense mm-hmm. and trying to deter attacks mm-hmm. doesn't seem to be working as well as we would like. So should we be playing more offense a la Stuxnet or other things? What are your thoughts on that question?
0: hmm Well, it's Pretty nuanced. I mean, first of all, I think offense alone is not going to get us out of the place we're in. My takeaway from doing this book was the U.S. remains the world's most advanced offensive cyber power, but our advantage is slipping. And we are also the most targeted country on earth now. And in some ways you could argue we're the most vulnerable because we are so digitized and only becoming more so. So yes, we can continue with offense, but I think it's a little bit nuanced. I mean, Stuxnet, at the end of the day was a counter-proliferation effort. Our espionage programs, I don't think you could ever recommend that the U.S. slow down on espionage, but we have been getting more aggressive. We have been hacking into... Russia's grid, for example, I broke that story with my colleague David Singer a couple of years ago, and we're not trying to hide it. Actually, when we went to the National Security Council with that story, said, "Here's everything we have. We're about to publish that." Cyber command has been hacking into the Russian grid. Do you have a problem with this? And if so, let's have those conversations. And usually those conversations are pretty painful um, between officials and journalists. But in this case, they said, we have no problems at all. Go ahead and publish it, which just goes <laughs> to show that, you know, this is really part of a deterrent strategy. Um, and I don't know if it's working. You no, know, did Russia not hack into our election in the way they did in 2016, and go further because we were inside their grid. I don't know, um, but clearly they weren't deterred uh, enough to not pull off the attack. We're unwinding now on federal IT networks uh, from Solar Winds, so I don't know whether it's it's working in in terms of a deterrent strategy. I think. For too long, we have relied on offense, not just for deterrence, but to set up this early warning system to see what the adversaries were doing with the theory that maybe we could head off these attacks before they hit U.S. networks. And the big takeaway from the SolarWinds hack we're unwinding right now is it didn't work. We totally missed it. FireEye is the one who discovered it, a private company, and only because they themselves were hacked and then went back and and dug through their own software supply chain and realized that this had come in through SolarWinds and that it had hit um, some of our most sensitive government systems. So I'm not at a place to say, let's pull back on offense, but I am at a place where I can safely say that if we are going to continue to do this kind of offense um, you know attacking other countries critical infrastructure why have we not made a more serious effort to lock up our own critical infrastructure um, why is it so easy these days still to get into an American power plant or as we just saw the other week a, an American water treatment facility to contaminate the water now if you're gonna pull off these attacks I think you really really need to start taking defense more seriously and defense is hard and it's grueling and as someone put it to me, it's always been more fun to be a pirate than be in the Coast Guard, but we, we have barely made an effort when it comes to our defense. And so my argument is, let's, we can debate the merits of offensive strategy and these, and these grid attacks all day long. I do think it's problematic that we've essentially enshrined the grid as a legitimate hacking target for nation states. But if we're going to do that, let's let's have a serious conversation about defense and what it would take to lock up our critical infrastructure
1: last question uh what's your take on the recommendations from last year's cyber solarium mm-hmm. commission where they uh, made a whole bunch of recommendations but a big one was this kind of layered defense concept do you think do you think that's a valuable addition to the conversation
0: yes i actually I, I made my own recommendations in my epilogue which is always uncomfortable for a journalist you know we are so guilty of always saying this is messed up and this is messed up and, messed up, and never offering our own recommendations and it's a little bit of an awkward thing to do when you're not a technical person. But I did make my own recommendations. And then that report came out. And so I read them side by side. And and we were pretty aligned on most of on most of it, um, especially when they first came out and it was during the Trump administration and 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 the White House had eliminated the cybersecurity coordinator position and any cybersecurity that was being done under that administration was being done sort of in spite of rather than because of the administration. And so a lot of their recommendations centered on you know, creating these designated ro- roles for cyber, which I completely agree with. I also really appreciated the recommendations around examining the software supply chain Understanding just a basic understanding of what is in our networks. When I called up a lot of the victims of the Solar Winds attack, most of them didn't even know they used Solar Solar Winds. Let alone that a lot of the you know that its security was shoddy and that a lot of its code was built and tested overseas in places like Belarus. Um, wow. I also think it's even worse when you look at open source. Um, you know, open source code makes up something like eighty percent of the software that we use and. And the idea there was always that like Wikipedia, with enough eyeballs on the code, um, we could really find flaws, gaping holes in this code and lock it down. But the reality has turned into something entirely different, which is a couple of years ago, security researchers discovered a huge gaping hole in Open SSL, which was an open source uh, encryption security protocol. And when we dug in, you know, that open source protocol was used for security at Amazon, at the Pentagon, at the FBI. And when I dug in a little further, it was being maintained literally by two guys named Steve in the UK who were operating on a shoestring budget of donations of about $3,000 and had missed the whole. and who could blame them. Um, so, you know, we, we don't even know what's in our network let let alone what tools make up the tools that are in our network. So where I really appreciated, um, the Solarium's recommendations was on taking stock of what is in our systems, understanding how much of it is American made, how much of it is secure, how is it secured, who, who is responsible for maintaining it, Are they adequately funded and vetted? You know, those recommendations might sound really granular, but I think it's really these kind of basic things. Uh, that we need to do before we have these high level conversations around international norms and et cetera. Like if you're not making it impossible for people to fish your network, if you're not telling employees, don't click on these links and make sure you turn on two factor authentication. If you're not vetting the code in your Tesla vehicles or the grid, then it's almost pointless to have those, those other conversations because it just it's just too easy for anyone to get into our systems. And in a lot of cases, our adversaries like Russia and China and Iran rely on cyber criminals and outside contractors to do their dirty work. And so even if we were to agree to certain norms of behavior, um, we just don't have the same plausible deniability as our adversaries do. And you know, it's like Putin said a couple of years ago, hackers are like artists. They just wake up in the morning and start painting and we have very little control over what they do. And that is a very real thing. You know, he relies on this sort of plausible deniability and this um, healthy or unhealthy relationship between the state and its cyber criminals to do a lot of their dirty work. And so let's make it harder for them. And then we can talk about, you know, what kind of norms of behavior would we agree to Uh, without handcuffing ourselves.
1: Cole. this has been great. Thanks for being on the podcast.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: That's a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, send us an email at nsi.gmu.edu or tweet us at Mason If you like what we're doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing, Lester Munson for hosting. And Grant Haver for producing and directing. Join us next week for another provocative conversation and further analysis of national security's fault lines.